This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We launched our new Wednesday medical panel on the third anniversary of the first confirmed case of COVID in Toronto, which was also the first confirmed case of COVID in Canada. Our panelists on the medical record represent key parts of the healthcare system. Dr. Malcolm Moore is a renowned oncologist and former head of the BC Cancer Agency and former physician-in-chief at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Dr. Alyssa Naiman is a family doctor working in the community as medical director of the medical station in Toronto. And Dr. Fahad Razak is the former head of the now-disbanded Ontario COVID Science Advisory Table and a general internist at Unity Health Toronto. Libby began the conversation by asking Dr. Razak, where are we at in the pandemic? Where we're at is a complicated question, so I don't want to take all of your panel's time, but I would say over the last three years, we've made significant strides. So if you think about this illness that came out of nowhere three years ago that ended up causing a lot of people to be in hospital with severe pneumonias, requiring ICU-level care, we have found over the last three years the combination of vaccines, effective treatments, and the immunity that people got from infections now means that many, many fewer people end up with that kind of severe COVID disease in our ICUs even when we're seeing waves. On the other hand, we see that the disruption from the pandemic continues in a very, very significant way, both in the strain on the health system, uh, but also through other worries, things like long COVID, when we have these recurring infections and the ability of infections to tip over other illnesses. So although you don't see people ending up with COVID pneumonia, as you're seeing, for example, it can be a precipitant for heart failure or asthma exacerbations. So the pandemic has changed significantly. There's a lot of good news, but I still think there's a lot of work to be done. And of course, COVID, hi, Elisa, has had a huge impact on family medicine and primary care. So how would you assess where you're at now? Um, actually, I would say in the last couple of months, things are, are slowing down in terms of people coming in with being sick. And we're sort of getting back more into just dealing with everyday primary care, trying to still catch people up on their PAPs, you know, on their diabetes checkups, their blood pressure. Um, and what has the COVID done to the, to the healthcare system? Well, from a primary care perspective, it's completely, uh, put everything upside down and just how we practice medicine and the system we exist is completely different than what it was three years ago and the challenges that we face on an everyday basis. So pre-pandemic, if I wanted to order a CT scan for a patient, I could get a CT scan within a couple of weeks. Um, and now um, it's a backlog of months, four, six months to get a test. Um, ordering uh, referrals to specialists before, you know, maybe it would be a couple months wait. Sometimes it would be longer, but at least we would know that the patient would have an appointment. Now just referrals get rejected right from the start, and it's a matter of trying to find somebody who we can get an appointment for. 
it's become very, very challenging. Dr. Moore, it had a big impact on cancer treatment. So uh, where are we at with that? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's driving the cancer system really is the aging demographic. Cancer increases in frequency as we age. The population is aging. So the number of cancer cases that we're seeing is disproportionate to the population growth. We just heard from Dr. Naiman that it's taking her much longer to get diagnostic tests like like CTs or specialist appointments. So I'm assuming that in the cancer system, you're still seeing patients later than you ordinarily would. I would say overall that's correct uh, because patients don't directly access the cancer system. They come through their family physicians or through specialists after diagnostic tests are done. So I think that's a fair comment. Dr. Razak. Yeah, I think we started with this being the third, uh, the three-year anniversary of the first cases in Canada. And, you know, I would say there's a real opportunity still to protect yourself. So um, the vast majority of eligible people in Ontario and Canadians for the bivalent vaccine have not received them yet. Uh, There is a surge right now. So I would say go go out and get that vaccine and you will help protect yourself and your families. And protect the health system we've talked a bit about as well. So do your part. And I, I would additionally add, if you can do it, masks in crowded indoor settings, now would be a good time in the middle of the surge. Okay, Dr. Moore, last word to you. I would just say that there are no simple solutions to the challenges facing healthcare. It's a very complicated, interconnected organism. And these initiatives, like moving some surgeries to a private clinic, Could be a good thing, could be a bad thing, the devil's in the details. And I think you have to look at each initiative and and think about the, the positive and negative impacts on the current system. Dr. Malcolm Moore, renowned oncologist and former head of the BC Cancer Agency and former physician-in-chief at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. Dr. Fahad Razak, former head of the now-disbanded Ontario COVID Science Advisory Table and a general internist at Unity Health Toronto. And Dr. Alyssa Naiman, family doctor working in the community as medical director of the medical station in Toronto. The medical record is heard every Wednesday after the noon news. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We're getting a lot of promises from Federal Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra as he says changes will be made to the Air Passenger Bill of Rights in the spring. Mark my words were his words. But can we really expect anything truly groundbreaking to come out of this commitment? It is likely there would be a pushback from airline executives. And what is Air Canada going to do about ongoing baggage chaos that many customers are complaining about? Libby talked about these issues with John Graddock, former executive with Air Canada and current faculty lecturer at McGill University, and Dr. Gabor Lukash, president and founder of Air Passenger Rights. I'm cautiously optimistic in that at least the government is now recognizing that the air passenger protection regime in Canada is broken. It needs to be revamped. This is what we have been saying all along. And uh, I'm pleased that the government is now uh, agreeing with that premise. How far the government uh, will go is unfortunately a uh, different matter. It is yet to be seen. Uh, I fear that it may not go far enough, but I am very ple- would be very pleased to be surprised. John Graddock. I don't hold as much um, promise 
as Gabor seems to have in terms of what the minister will be doing. I think, yes, there will be changes. I'm not sure they're going to be meeting what Gabor and I and others have been talking about in terms of the extent of change that's needed in the system. So uh, I'm just, I'm holding my breath. Gabor, we know that part of the problem is a backlog in the system. You have to go through the air, the transport agency before it gets anywhere else if you're making a complaint. And their backlog... That's not the case. The, the, the Canadian Transportation Agency is one option. You can take your case to small claims court and just forget about a Canadian Transportation Agency, which is what we have been recommending passengers for a long time. The backlog is, however, a very real problem. And certainly... Uh, if had the agency been functioning and doing its job, it was it would be a much faster process, a much more efficient process. But uh, the part of the problem is not simply the agency uh, being cozy with the airlines, which is certainly part of the problem, but also that the regulations and the framework was written in such a way that it requires disproportionate amount of time and resources to decide the faith for four hundred dollar compensation mountains of documents, hours of review of documents, it doesn't lend itself to quick resolution, unlike the European Union's gold standard. I I was going to ask, uh, how are other countries, how is the European Union handling it? In the European Union, the system is sufficiently simple that it takes a matter of minutes to determine whether compensation is owed to passengers on a given flight. As a result, passenger complaints lend themselves to quick resolution, as well as to uh, private claim management companies that would go on your behalf after the airline for a portion of the amount owed to you and enforce your rights because it is so simple and straightforward in terms of the evidence needed. So, like, what what do you need to do? In uh, Europe, the amount of information you typically need to know is the flight number, when you were supposed to arrive, when you actually arrived, and whether there were any extraordinary circumstances like a uh, volcanic eruption or an act of terrorism, something truly extraordinary outside the normal airline operation. If there was no extraordinary circumstance, the airline just has to pay. That is what these private companies are using. They have databases. And when you give them the basic information about their flight, they can predict very reliably whether you're owed compensation. And based on that, they will likely take your claim if it is valid and uh, pursued in court in Europe if necessary, if the airline is trying to be difficult. But because the situation is so obvious, airlines are far less likely to be difficult than in Canada. And uh, do either of you know how long does it take to get paid there? Well, I, I've seen some individuals basically with some experience in, in the European flight disruptions that, you know, carriers are being very proactive and, you know, not just dealing with those passengers that are asking for compensation, but dealing with all the passengers on the flight, they know who the passengers are, so they can proactively reach out to the passengers and advise them of this is the compensation that we are going to pay you. Uh, Please confirm your ranking instructions, and we will, in fact, use electronic transfer to move those funds into your bank account as quickly as we can, and typically it's 72 hours. The EU has a lot more clout, and the EU basically doesn't, doesn't, you know, pussyfoot around in terms of, you know, taking these carriers on, in terms of making sure they are meeting their obligations covered under the EU legislation. Uh, so it is in the best interest of those carriers, basically, to avoid the wrath of the EU, and they're doing things proactively. 
John Graddock, former executive with Air Canada and now faculty lecturer at McGill University in Montreal, and Dr. Gabor Lukash, president and founder of Air Passenger Rights. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, getting to the root cause of random violence on the TTC. We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. On Thursday, our tune into the town panel addressed the issues around the string of recent random acts of violence on the TTC. Municipal and union leaders are calling for big meetings, summits, and task forces to address the root causes of this type of violence. But transit and homeless and mental health advocates say enough with meeting, it's time for action. Following fight back on Thursday, Toronto's mayor, police chief, and TTC CEO announced a short-term plan to put 80 more uniformed police officers on Toronto's transit system. Libby was joined ahead of that announcement by David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and John Burnside, Toronto City Councillor for Don Valley East and chair of the TTC. I think we need more uniformed officers on the system, not only to make uh, people feel safer, but actually make things safer. And uh, I'm hoping to um, see that happen in the very near future. My question is that even with that, uh, I mean, even if you get more police officers, they can't be everywhere all the time. <laughs> you know, if you have even 50, right? If, if they don't happen to be in a place where this occurs, uh, how does that work? Well, no, and you look, I mean, you can't be everywhere and you can't bring the numbers down to zero. The TTC, let's, let's remember that the TTC is a reflection of what's going on in Toronto. So we're not going to get crime down to zero. Um, but that said, um, understanding where the majority of situations are occurring and I think putting police at entrances to the subways, for instance, it's a good start. I think that will dissuade people who, you know, are looking to cause trouble from entering the system in the first place and in the places where more trouble is occurring, um, that will also have a, a dampening effect as well. And, of course, John uh, is a former police officer. Karen, you're a former TTC chair. Do you uh, agree with his short-term re- remedy? I, I do agree, Libby, that uh, we do need more uh, presence of safety officers uh, within the system. And, you know, as the councillor pointed out, you're not going to, you can't have police riding every single bus and every single subway, preventing every single incident. But uh, but you do need a police presence. And and I would also add that um, you know if there's a way, not not that you necessarily want to pay people to ride the TTC, but but the reality is it's safety in numbers, and people will feel more safe if they feel that there's more people that are there looking out for each other. And so I remember when we used to have information um, attendants that were you know providing information for people when certain uh, subway platforms were under construction or bus routes um, were, were being used um, because of the subway being down. And, you know, if we could get some ambassadors, TTC ambassadors, to be, you know, pay them to ride the subway and to be visible, to be a presence, not that they're going to stop crime, but they've got more eyes on what's going on. 
and um, and they have a you know a, a, an instant way to radio for help. I think that would increase the general sense of security on the subway and, mm. and the buses and the streetcars. I mean, uh, Karen, it's interesting that you're saying be more visible because uh, the union leaders have started to advise their people saying, uh, cover up your uniform and, uh, until you get somewhere blocked off and, and safe. David Crombie, uh, I don't think this existed way back when, when you were in the chair as mayor. No, uh, it, uh, not not certainly not in the same way, but it's always been around and some way. I think uh, I think the advice just been given by both uh, uh, the other parties were, are, are that there needs to be a sense of presence of authority in the system. People have to get used to the idea that somewhere there's a, a cop on the beat or a person or an ambassador, but it needs to have a uniform, I, I might say. there's a. I think there's a, uh, we, we learned from community policing years ago that it's the presence of the uniform uh, on, a re- on, a, on a regular or semi- regular basis that that gives the sense of presence that, that that repels people who might want to do bad things you can't be everywhere but i think they're right it's really a that's a it's a good thing to do it's, it's summed up by more cops i don't know that it's only more police but it certainly needs to be people who have a uniform who, who give the place a sense of presence and I, I would think and the ttc folks can tell you that they have some idea of where there are more dangerous spots than in others um and, and, and where usage, as Karen was pointing out, usage also repels those who might want to do. They're like more people around, uh, the, 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 more, the more chance that things won't happen as opposed to, uh, to, to do. David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and John Burnside, Toronto City Councillor and Chair of the TTC. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. So what's next for Rogers and Shaw Internet and cell phone customers now that the Federal Court of Appeal has dismissed an appeal by the Competition Bureau to overturn the approval of the $28 billion merger? The authorities have said it won't hurt competition despite other stakeholders who say otherwise. Will the CRTC, the broadcast regulator, or members of the Commons Industry and Technology Committee be able to change anything? And in addition to price competition, what about service? The deal rests on the sale of Freedom Mobile, and some of their customers have had service issues. Libby spoke with Michael Benetti, managing partner of the firm Affleck Green McMurtry LLP, to get some clarity. It, it just shows that appeals are very tough for anybody. In this case, the appeal was especially tough for the commissioner because the underlying decision was so unequivocally um, in favor of the of the merger uh, that it wasn't anti-competitive. So it's not really technical. It just proves the the problem that it's it's really hard to appeal uh, to win on an appeal usually. Uh huh. And uh, does this mean, in your opinion, I mean, the the uh, the industry minister, François-Philippe Champagne, still has to approve it, but does he have wiggle room to say no if he thinks that's the right thing to do, or is that increasingly tough for him? The two issues are, the on the merger, whether or not a merger can proceed, it, that's decided now. The, the Commission of Competition is not going to appeal that to the Supreme Court. So really all that's left for the Minister Champagne is to decide how the government wants to put any conditions on the transfer of the wireless spectrum licenses to Videotron. 
uh, that's really what they have left. And, and he did put some conditions on uh, to make sure that uh, Videotron, at least in his opinion, would be a, an effective competitor in wireless only. So that's really all that's left. It seems that uh, we are basically doomed to some of the highest Internet and cell phone charges in the world. Yeah, the the out west, because Rogers just replaced Shaw, I guess it's more of the same along the lines of what, what you're talking about uh, for the Internet, for the actual wired services. On wireless, um, you know, Freedom's already in Ontario. Really, the commissioner in this case was saying that in B.C. and Alberta, they would have a lessening of competition if you if you took freedom away from Shaw. Um, in this case, I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if the Videotron is going to make an effective go. What they have done is, you know, struck some deals with Rogers to get some preferential access to their to their network so they can run the 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 wireless. But I don't know if Rogers is going <laughs> to let them undercut them that much. Well, that, that that's a pretty big question mark. We have a, a brand new uh, CRTC commissioner, a brand new head of the CRTC, uh, who says that cell phone prices and the cost uh, are, are her priority. I mean, uh, in your opinion, can we expect some kind of relief? I think if you if we use the U.S. as an example, where you've got some companies who you know own the wires and the waves, and and they'll lease them out to some competitors to run a maybe a slightly uh, lower service, but that appeals to a certain uh, demographic or price point, then I guess the answer to your question is maybe, uh, but I don't know. I'm highly skeptical that you're going to find a company out there that wants to invest the amount of money that you need to build out a network from coast to coast. I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that company exists. And Videotron is not even proposing to do that. They're saying, well, you know, we'll have some towers and the rest will, will buy them off Rogers. But really, you got to cobble that together. It's almost like, uh, you, you know, you, you have to build a, a Frankenstein if you're going to make this work. Otherwise, uh, I don't know who has the wherewithal to compete with those other three players just from a, a spending standpoint. So is it, is your take on it, it's basically same old, same old? No, I think there's an opportunity to have, you know, two kinds of player, which is one that, that gets great rates that you can, they can lease some of the space off of the big players and sell a kind of service that may be more budget conscious. I mean, if you, and if you watch any US TV, there's that company there, I think it's called Consumer Cellular. And they have, you know, JD Power says they have one of the best service uh, services out there, but they don't actually own any of their own spectrum or wires. For me, if you're asking me, I think that's the only way we're going to have competition here because, you know, who who has the money to, to go up against the other three to make a brand new network? Mm-hmm. So it, it's going to have to, it, I think the only way we can get competition is if it looks slightly different than what we have now. Michael Benetti, managing partner of the firm Affleck Green McMurtry LLP. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. 
CETA in Mississauga phoned with a solution to prevent random violence among young people. What we do need is have more funded community service programs for the, for the youngsters. They will stay after school and run student clubs, games, etc., and have them volunteer in hospitals and food banks. In this way, they don't they don't have this free time to run around and get themselves in into trouble. Kate in Toronto also called on this topic. There are no consequences for people under 18. Their names are shielded from the public. You don't know who they are. And there's just no consequences. And I think something has to be done to make it public so that if you engage in that type of behavior, no matter what your age, it's going to be out there in the media. It impacts your life in the future. Well, tough. You made the choice to behave like that. Take your consequences. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Helen in Mississauga, who joined the conversation about random violence on the TTC and among young people. I think with the police, uh, or uniforms as you say, on, on site... I think it would be a good deterrent. And also, I think for a lot of young people, they, they know that they, their name doesn't go out. They don't, they don't have to answer much to anything. They're out on bail, even, you know, everyone. And for the people that are having mental issues, if the police were even there, they could, you know, at least take them somewhere to help them, um, or get someone to help them. But I think for the average one, it's not its not necessarily mental issues. It's people just running around being bad. I grew up in Toronto, and we just knew, like, when the police said stop, you stopped. If they asked you a question, you answered the question. Like, there's, there's nobody that they have to be accountable to when they're doing these things. And uh, I think yeah, sometimes it's, there's mental issues, but I think other times it's just getting up to trouble. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.